Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do terrific work. And you can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Bob Levy. He's a senior fellow emeritus in constitutional studies at the former and former chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about the exercise of legislative power by administrative agencies. We'll also visit with Professor Andrew Joppa, the author of Josephus of Oz. It is October the 19th, and on this day in 1796, an essay appeared in the Gazette of the United States in which a writer, mysteriously named Phocian, attacked presidential candidate Thomas Jefferson. Phocian turned out to be a former Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton. The essay typified the nasty personal nature of political attacks in the late 18th century in America. When the article appeared, Jefferson was running against then-Vice President John Adams in an acrimonious campaign. The highly influential Hamilton, also a Federalist, supported Adams over Jefferson, one of Hamilton's political rivals, since the two men served together in Washington's first cabinet. According to Hamilton, Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow, Hamilton wrote 25 essays under the name Phocian, for the Gazette between October the 15th and November the 24th, lambasting Jefferson and Jeffersonian Republicanism. On October the 19th, Hamilton went further, accusing Jefferson of carrying on an affair with one of his enslaved workers. This would be the, uh, not the last time that such allegations would appear in print. In 1792, publisher James Candler, then a supporter of Jefferson's, whose paper was secretly funded by Jefferson and his Republican allies, published a report of Alexander Hamilton's adulterous affair with a colleague's wife, in which Hamilton later confessed. However, in 1802, when then-President Jefferson snubbed Callender's uh, request for a political appointment, Callender retaliated with an expose on Jefferson's concubine. He's believed to have had been referring to Sally Hemings, who was part of Black and also the likely half-sister of Jefferson's deceased wife, Martha. Further, the article alleged that Sally's son, John, bore a striking resemblance to those of the president himself. Jefferson chose not to respond to the allegations. Rumors that the widow Jefferson had an affair with one of his enslaved workers persist to this day and have spawned years of scholarly and scientific research regarding he and Hemings' alleged progeny. In 2000, a research report issued by Thomas Jefferson Foundation used DNA test results, original documents, oral histories, and statistical analysis of the historical record to conclude that Jefferson was probably the father of Sally Hemings' son, Eston, and likely her other children. Thomas Jefferson. Again, just showing how acrimonious politics were back in the day, we say it's really gotten worse. <laughs> Maybe it's better than it was back in that day. Well, uh, Senator Marco Rubio had an exceptional performance in the debate against Democrat midterm challenger Congresswoman Val Demings on Tuesday, hammering her for extreme position on a variety of issues as moderators continued to show their biased hand. During one particular biased moment at the debate, the moderator pressed Rubio to state if he supports any exceptions for abortion while uh, not once pressing Val Demings 
on it or if she supports any restrictions on for the practice. Even though Rubio said he was always supported federal abortion bans that provide exceptions regardless of his personal pro-life positions, the moderator kept pressing him on the question. Despite the biased questioning, Rubio continued his attacks on Val Demings and noted that she holds an extremist position on abortion, such as her uh, support for tax-funded uh, taxpayer-funded abortions and the fact that she could not admit to sponsoring any restrictions. The, the extremist on abortion is the campaign is, is Congressman Woman Demings, he said. She supports no restrictions, no limitations of any kind. She's against a four-month ban. She voted against a five-month ban. She supports taxpayer-funded abortion on demand for any reason up to the time or until the moment of birth. That's what she supports. That's the extreme position here, said uh, Marco Rubio. <clears throat> In the open question, debate moderator Todd McDermott showed his biased hand by characterizing the recent disastrous Hurricane Ian as a product of climate change. Three weeks ago tomorrow, Hurricane Ian hit Florida as one of the five most powerful storms to ever make landfall in the United States. What federal action is needed starting now to protect Florida from sea levels projected to rise a foot or more in less than 30 years while more frequent monster storms threaten our lives and our livelihoods, asked McDermott. Climate change is real. If we don't do something about it and we're going to pay a terrible price for it, more intense storms will likely we've seen. And as the waters in the oceans continue to warm up, more intense storms, more flooding, more devastation. That, of course, to Val, uh, by, uh, said by Val Demings, uh, failing to show how exactly the Democrat policies would help control the weather. She didn't do that. Later, when the debate shifted towards voting rights, Rick Christie, editor, uh, executive editor of Palm Beach Post, appeared visibly miffed when the moderator moved the discussion along after Marco Rubio had publicly stated he would support the results of a 2022 election and that he opposed a federal takeover of elections. I was supported because Florida has good laws, Rubio said. Fair enough. Let's move to the next question, responded McDermott. Uh, I don't think we can give Congressman Demings the chance. Uh, I don't think we gave her a chance, injected uh, Christie. Well, going to move on to the next question, said McDermott. So in other words, there's uh, not honor among thieves up there. <laughs> there was a little dissension going on. As the other moderators proceed to ask a question, Christie audibly sighed as he shook the moment off. On the issue of Second Amendment, Marco Rubio stood firm on his support for gun rights as Val Demings attacked him for allegedly doing nothing to protect Floridians from mass shooters. Most notably, uh, Rubio voiced his support for a certain type of red flag law that would uh, not allow citizens to petition left-wing judges. Uh, So what that would allow them is for perhaps a a sheriff's officer or policeman to uh, go to court and uh, say that, hey, this person that has a gun is a danger to society, and uh, the, the judge can make a decision to, to uh, take away that Second Amendment right based on a judge's decision. So that was the debate. Uh, apparently, Rubio uh, won <laughs> against four the moderators, three moderators, and, and one candidate, Val Demings. Congratulations, Marco Rubio. Well, one month ago, the media used a generic ballot polling market to claim Democrats were making a comeback of sorts. A week or two ago, the narrative shifted to Republicans making limited gains. Now that Election Day is almost upon us, and now that Real Clear Politics has announced its plan to begin keeping score on pollsters and their relative success in predictive outcomes, well, suddenly the RCP's 
congressional metric has begun turning more red. <laughs> Republicans, uh, resu- uh, the Republican result is up 1.5 points in average in a single week, and now has hit its highest point since February. Republicans have a four-point lead at that time, about twice the lead now, but Democrats are declining slightly ahead of the election day as well. So what does all this mean? It pretends a significant wave in House races, to be sure. Thanks to the restructure of a generic ballot polling, Democrats generally need to get about D plus four or D plus five to hold serve in an election. At R plus 2.2, if that's where it stays, suggests a massive set of pickups, at least in relative in a relative sense. Uh, of course, the Republicans already have 212 seats in the House, so a 30-seat pickup would give them a blowout majority and put them close to 2010 territory. If the lead widens any further, it may well also point to a wave that could lift marginal GOP candidates for Senate into the office as well. This is what happened in 2014 for an instance and uh, outcome the, that pollsters missed entirely. So right now, the real clear politics holding them accountable, and they say, well, you know, we don't only have egg on our face. We're going to start issuing poll results that actually reflect reality. Hmm. Interesting. Well, the White House attempted to convince Democrat mayor of El Paso, Texas, to not issue any emergency declaration over an influx of illegal migrants entering into the city because it would shed a negative light on President Joe Biden, according to the New York Post. The Biden administration directed Democrat mayor Oscar Lesser against making the declaration during the phone call, uh, this according to the New York Post, uh, who said that he made the admission during a private phone call. At least uh, three El Paso City Council members urged Lesser to declare the emergency of the surge of illegal immigrants. He told me that the White House asked him not to. Can you believe that? Quid pro quo. Good old Joe. You know, he has, he's a bully. He doesn't uh, have influence. He has, doesn't take the time to try to suggest people to do the right thing. Instead, he just says, we want you to do this, and there could be some consequences. Unbelievable. And in line with that, U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia are now at an all-time low after Biden threatened the oil-rich nation for not complying with his demands. The Biden administration continues to its case study on what not to do in international relations. Less than a week ago, Biden begging the Saudis to increase oil production so the gas prices in the U.S. would remain low. Uh, the all-time highs set earlier in the year. Unfortunately for Biden, the Saudis didn't make any changes based on his request. Biden reacted to all this uh, with a threat to the Saudis. Can you believe that? News of the uh, president's latest plans for oil come as he announced that he would reassess the U.S. alliance with the oil-rich Saudis for their support to Russia. A move was sure to jack up gas prices just ahead of midterm elections. Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman's cousin issued a violent threat against those who challenge Saudi Arabia after Biden warned there would be consequences for OPEC cutting oil prices in production. Uh, Not prices, production. In a message aimed at the West, Saudi al-Shalan is seen in a video saying, anybody who challenges the existence of this kingdom, we are all projects of jihad and martyrdom. Anybody that thinks they can threaten us, his threat comes at a time of all sky-high tensions between Washington and, uh, of course, the Saudis after OPEC Plus cut oil production by 2 million barrels per day. So Biden now is uh, destroying relationships with the Saudis, And basically, he's trying to bully them, just like he tries to bully the American public. Remember what he said about 
uh, the shots, the vaccine. Hey, we're losing our patients. Can you believe that? So instead of trying to convince us on why this is the right thing to do, he simply threatens. He threatened the Saudis. He threatened the mayor of El Paso, and now he's uh, he's threatened the American public. This guy is not a leader. He's so weak, and uh, he should be out of office. So the uh, these relationships now uh, with, I think uh, right now that uh, <clears throat> the relationship with the Saudis is now moving towards uh, uh, China and Russia, Biden's actions like those in Afghanistan led Saudi Arabia to review its relationship with the United States and eventually align with Russia. This is leading to the end of the petrodollar, which will have material and negative effects and consequences for the U.S. Now by threatening the Middle East nation, Biden is confirming for the Saudis their alignment with Russia and China. What a mess this is. You know, <laughs> Biden says nobody Fs with the Bidens or with a Biden. Well, everybody is. Nobody pays any attention to him. He's a bully. Unfortunate. And I must say, a creep, too. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman, our former chairman of the Cato Institute and currently... Uh, Senior Fellow Emeritus in Constitutional Studies. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252 252- 4541. 
Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, now building a beautiful performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more and get tickets by visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's a senior fellow emeritus in constitutional studies and for 14 years served as chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you so much for that, Bob. So uh, we've been talking about the ways that uh, the uh, government has expanded since uh, from Supreme Court's court cases since the New Deal, especially true when it comes to administrative agencies. Numerous laws control what Americans can and can't do, but some of those laws were never passed by Congress. Instead, they were imposed by administrative agencies such as the EPA, doesn't the Constitution require that all federal laws be enacted by Congress? Article 1, uh, Section 1, which is the very first sentence in the Constitution after the preamble, says, quote, all legislative power is vested in Congress. Um, why did it say that? Because the framers were smart guys and they knew if Congress passes an oppressive law, the voters can respond uh, by electing new folks. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem is that suppose the law is murky and nobody knows what it means, or as with Obamacare, for example, nobody bothers to read it before they pass it. And then the president instructs one of these 300-plus regulatory agencies in D.C. to flush out the details. Under those circumstances, the voters don't have any recourse because these agencies and cabinet departments are run by unelected bureaucrats that are not responsive to the political process. So, you know, Congress's powers are not inherent. They're delegated to Congress uh, by us, by the people, through the Constitution. Accordingly, Congress can't turn around and redelegate those powers unless, again, the people, through the Constitution, consent to that redelegation, and we haven't done so. No, we haven't. They have, though. <laughs> Is the underlying problem about the content of the laws or the process by which they're enacted? Well, from a constitutional perspective, it, it's not only which laws are ultimately adopted, but what also matters is that Congress, and not an executive or administrative agency, supplies the laws. So if Congress needs technical assistance because lawmaking is complicated, it can get it. You know, it has congressional staff, it has universities, professional associations, think tanks like the Cato Institute, and naturally the, the agencies themselves. But Congress itself should have to review the recommendations of these agencies and sign on before they become law. At least Congress needs a consensus to pass these laws. So who, who are the 535 legislators that an administrative agency has to convince. And how do we know that opposing views were adequately uh, aired? And, and where's the record of the agency's deliberations and what factors were considered and rejected? What do the voters and taxpayers do 
if the agency gets it wrong. Mm-hmm. And most important, the doctrine of separation of powers, which has been a cornerstone of the Constitution, does not permit combining legislative, executive, and judicial functions in one entity. And yet, that's what these agencies have, all three functions. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, it'd be one thing if these legislative agencies or these alphabet agencies reported to the Congress, but they report to the to the executive branch. That's right. <laughs> and, that's, and the executive branch is not in the business of making laws. They're in, in the business of effecting laws, of putting laws into effect, executing the law, not drafting the law. So what's the practical effect of regulatory overreach during the Obama administration? Well, the Obama administration was a a major uh, culprit when it comes to excessive uh, delegation to agencies. So we had a a Republican House, and they weren't willing to advance Obama's agenda. And so the the D.C. alphabet agencies were operating overtime. You know, you had Department of Health and Human Service regulating health care. You had the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, under the Dodd-Frank Act. You had the EPA setting global warming standards. And if you want to know the the scope of that problem, uh, these federal agencies now dwarf Congress when it comes to making rules that control uh, what you and I can do or what we can't do. The Code of Federal Regulations, that's where all these rules are tabulated. That's more than 200 bound volumes, about six times as large as the U.S. Code that contains all the laws passed by Congress. Unbelievable. So how did the agency regulations impact the second Obamacare case, the one involving state and federal insurance exchanges? Yeah, this this is really a pretty good indication of how the whole process is out of whack. The case was King versus Burwell, uh, the administrative state on steroids. You know, the Supreme Court had to resolve whether internal revenue could pass regulations making Obamacare subsidies available on the federal insurance exchanges. And the text of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, said that the federal government can set up exchanges if a state decides not to. But this text also said that subsidies to consumers are available only on exchanges established by the state, not the federal exchanges. So enter IRS, and IRS passes a regulation that supposedly overrides this law passed by Congress and signed by the president. So here, here was the problem. If the subsidies were not available on federal exchanges, then it would follow that more than 5 million Americans might not be able to afford insurance, and they would therefore be exempt from the individual mandate, which had a poverty exception. Hmm. So bottom line, if the lawmakers had understood that, Obamacare would not likely have been enacted, and yet IRS stepped in and effectively changed the law. I remember Michael Cannon, the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute, put up a heck of a fight to support the law, as opposed to the interpretation by the IF, by the IRS of the law, he failed at it, yeah, but all, the, he put up a good ultimately fight. Ultimately unsuccessful, but it was a heck of a fight. You're yep. right. So, what was the government's argument supporting the IRS regulation? Well, the government maintained that the term "established by the state" was actually didn't mean that. It was a term of art. It was a technical phrase, and it embraced 
embraced more than the words uh, suggest. So the the feds argued that when the state opts out, uh, the feds simply step in as a surrogate for the state so that functionally the federal exchange is an exchange established by the state. Never mind, you know, that that's nothing but doublespeak. Right. So in any event, if there were ambiguity in the statute, the administration insisted that the courts had to defer to IRS's interpretation. Uh, that's a misreading of what the Constitution requires. So what's your response to the government's argument that subsidies were obviously intended for buyers on federal exchanges? Well, this is an issue of determining intent. It may be useful when you have a text of a statute that you don't know what it means. But there's nothing ambiguous about the phrase established by the state. Right. Uh, And Congress has repeatedly conditioned the receipt of of federal benefits on state cooperation. So nobody should have been surprised or puzzled by just one one more program that bribed the states uh, to join. We had, you know, LBJ's Medicaid did that, Nixon's health care reform, Clinton's Health Security Act, uh, Bush's health coverage tax credit, Obama's Medicaid expansion, all of those in the health area withheld federal benefits unless the states jumped through various hoops. And the ACA subsidy scheme was just one more in a long, a long line of this federal carrots and sticks. Congress's intent was both obvious and it was commonplace. And, and you may recall that Jonathan Gruber, who was a key architect of Obamacare, said, and this was a quote, if you're a state and you don't set up an exchange, that means your citizens don't get their tax rates. Right. He was exactly right. Yeah. It sounded pretty clear to everybody except to the courts. Bob Levy, again, former chairman of the Cato Institute and uh, uh, senior fellow emeritus in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. Again, Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, that and more, right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Finish what you started with the Hodges University wheel. You can complete your bachelor's degree in as little as one year with your previously earned credits. What's the wheel? It's a customized bachelor's degree in organizational management. Learn about and apply the business, management, and leadership skills you need to advance your career. 
You can get unmatched educational experience with classes held once a week on campus in Fort Myers, in Port Charlotte, or Naples. You'll be immersed in classes taught by professors with real-world experience in the areas of business, management, and leadership. This degree can be applied to all areas of professional career. Learn more by calling 239-938-7700. That's 239-938-7700. Or visit hodges.edu. Stay near and go far with Hodges University. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Professor Andrew Jopper. He's a professor and author of a great read, Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Andy. We usually start the show with uh, good news that you've seen over the past week. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, there's some good news. I mean, I immediately here in Florida, you know, Rubio and DeSantis are both leading by seven points. That's that's good news. I'm just amazed that it's not more than seven points, but I think that's a substantial lead in a semi-purple state. So uh, I think that is good news. Both deserve it. Uh, uh, Demings the other night with her debate with uh, with Rubio, we just went entirely ad hominem, and she totally moved towards a un- unlimited abortion platform. Which, right, uh, I think uh, is not a winning ticket for anyone, uh, e- even those that are uh, that are pro-choice. I think very few want the the full nine months to be eligible for an abortion. Um, Rubio, to me, uh, Bob is. Uh, his alignment with uh, Graham's plan for a, a 15-week federal uh, limit uh, on on abortion is is a dangerous way to go because obviously if the federal government can uh, limit abortion to 15 weeks, then another government can uh, can take it out to to, to 40 weeks, right. or whatever the number might be. That's the full term. Uh, I think that this is a dangerous thing to put the federal government back into the equation when essentially the Supreme Court said that this is uh, not essentially a federal issue, this is a state issue. So um, I understand Rubio positioning and I understand uh, Lindsey Graham's positioning. I just think it's a dangerous way to go for uh, for the Republican Party in general. But the good news again, DeSantis and Rubio both leading. Uh, there's good news sort of in a reverse situation uh, uh, I think the, the good news comes out of uh, the continuing exposure of the lunacy on the left. I, I think that can certainly be documented almost every day. Uh, Peter Strzok uh, on MSNBC said that uh, January 6th was a far worse event uh, than 9-11. Uh, it's, it's hard to imagine that he could conjure that kind of, of inappropriate comparison, but that's what, uh, what Peter Strzok said. Um, we can also see some of the protesters on the left, the, uh, the ones that try to damage the Van Gogh painting because he did it with oil paints. Uh, then there's a consistent process in the U.K. right now, Bob, where uh, people, young teenagers for the most part, are going into stores and spilling milk because that industry, they say, is a, a danger to the, to the environment. And just one more reverse good news from or bad news from good news. Uh, is the uh, Pelosi recently just said that the the most significant uh, issues are women's rights uh, and climate change in January 6th. Pelosi said that the American people do not care, do not care about crime or inflation. So uh, this kind of lunacy, I, I think, 
certainly is is uh, is typical and it's not going to stand them in good stead as we head towards the midterms. But. No, I couldn't agree. Just a comment about Lindsey Graham, I've just concluded, is uh, oh, he's just always looking for a TV camera to jump in front of, and the whole notion of getting, and we just eliminated through the Supreme Court decision, eliminated abortion as a federal consideration. It should be up to the states. That's pretty clear. And he jumps right back in and wants to make it a federal issue. Uh, and it, it, in my opinion, I think he's just trying to gain attention for himself as opposed to making a serious consideration for what our laws should be. I just, uh, I, I'm not a big Lindsey Graham fan. Well, neither am I, and that's certainly a likely, likely uh, a motivator for, for Graham. Uh, but again, I, I hate to see Rubio somewhat signing on to that 15-week uh, situation. Uh, again, because once the federal government is allowed back in, as you just uh, alluded to, uh, then uh, all bets are off in terms of what the federal government may may do uh, in the future. So right. uh, the Supreme Court said loudly this is a state issue, and I think that's exactly where the Republicans have to leave it at this point, Bob. Yeah, well said. Say, I want to compliment you. You wrote a couple of blogs about education, which both, by the way, I posted both of them. You can go to my website, bobharden.com, and just check out, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a pull-down tab where I post uh, many of uh, Andrew Joppa's uh, columns. These last two about are about education, just absolutely fantastic. Well, it's uh, not surprising uh, to me, but it may be to some, but you know, I, I publish on a lot of different topics, Bob, sure. uh, mostly political, certainly, but a whole wide range of topics, and occasionally on education. Nothing generates the, the response, the feedback that I get, more so than when I write on education. Uh, if I were to judge only by my, uh, my uh, essays going out to a fairly large audience and the feedback I get, I would say education is seen by uh, the majority as being the most significant issue in America. And I'll tell you what, Bob, I can agree with that. The simple reason being is that if there's one issue that, if it's improved, can change all the outcomes of all other issues, it is education. Right. And there's one issue, if it's not changed, will prevent the other issues from being seriously, uh, positively modified. It is also education. So education is that one issue where it has significance that pervades all other topics that are of importance to the American people, Bob. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, of course, in your column, you, you make the comment that uh, this is not a column about uh, government schools versus non-government schools and so forth, that uh, you talk about the outcome should be to pr produce a high-qualified citizen that can take personal responsibility and make a contribution to society. That's the purpose of an education. Well, I think we sort of lost track of that essential uh, um, benefit that's supposed to be achieved. We, we've converted it into a student-centered uh, educational process, uh, and that sounds good as I say those words, but uh, what we've done is just cater to the student as they are, uh, their parochialism, their incoming views. Uh, we have given very little concern to the, uh, the overall purpose is the student leaving that system as a qualified citizen, a citizen with a sense of responsibility, a citizen who doesn't depend on the largest of government, a citizen who respects the rights of others. That is why the other citizens of a community pay for the education of another person's child. We don't pay for their food. We don't pay for their clothing. We don't pay for their housing. The question has to be asked and answered, why do we pay for their education? The answer is because education done well, as it should be done, 
improves the quality of life for everyone in that society. So uh, that is why the citizens pay for it. Uh, but the, in that role, uh, many of the schools, I'm going to say most, and that may be an, uh, an overstatement, but certainly many of the schools are certainly not serving that essential function, Bob. Well, that's certainly the case. Andy, want to continue this discussion? Can you stick around? I will be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Finish what you started with a Hodges University wheel. You can complete your bachelor's degree in as little as one year with your previously earned credits. What's the wheel? It's a customized bachelor's degree in organizational management. Learn about and apply the business, management, and leadership skills you need to advance your career. You can get unmatched educational experience with classes held once a week on campus in Fort Myers, in Port Charlotte, or Naples. You'll be immersed in classes taught by professors with real-world experience in the areas of business, management, and leadership. This degree can be applied to all areas of professional career. Learn more by calling 239-938-7700. That's 239-938-7700. Or visit Hodges.edu. Stay near and go far with Hodges University. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. I hope you check it out. You can download the app and find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. We have with us Andrew Joppa, again, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, again, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be here, Bob. Thank you, Andy. One, one area in education that uh, I, I understand your point, but I disagree with a little bit, is I, I think that there is a, a cartel of education, in other words, right now, or a monopoly, and uh, I'm for school choice. In other words, uh, having a template for all students, uh, no matter how good it is, may not be uh, the most productive. And my, uh, my point is, we can certainly uh, create more competition by having school choice for parents. I, I agree with that when it comes to charter schools. As I indicated, I, I have a problem with the voucher system where a parent could take their money any place and put it into any school that at least meets the minimal 
curriculum requirements of that local area, uh, primarily because uh, much of the advocacy of that is for the establishment of religious-based schools, which, again, uh, if you're a a dedicated Christian, may sound good, but that's also going to allow the opening for madrasas, Islamic schools. There's there's no limit. And will these schools actually produce uh, quality American citizens, or will they just further subdivide the American people and balkanize us even further? So, I mean, charter schools, which are public schools now, right. charter schools are just schools where many of the regulations are minimized so that the school can uh, function in a stronger manner uh, towards the uh, the basics of education. Uh, I, I I think that's that's a good thing. Now, I don't have a dramatic resistance to, to the vouchers, but uh, my preference is charter schools to provide the choice that you suggest. With, with that in mind, getting back to the issue of, of vouchers, I, I would note something I put in my one of my essays about the statements that have been made about the Catholic schools in New York City. Uh, It has long been noted that the Catholic schools in the city do not educate well because of uh, or, uh, because of any other factor, but because they spend little money. Now the question becomes one: Why would spending a little money actually improve the quality of educational outcomes? It's because the schools, the Catholic schools, don't have the money to extend into uh, the frivolities uh, that are always going to be present when there's an abundance of money available. Right. So you know that's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, Uh, that more money may in fact actually damage education at a certain point in time by making the the educational process wider but not not nearly as deep as it should uh, should be in the essential areas of education. Bob. Well, there should be some metrics to uh, to your point to uh, uh, measure the outcomes. Do we have better citizens? Uh, are people taking responsibility and so forth? I mean, I think that's necessary. Uh, but right now, our monopoly, our schools, schools right now, they're failing students and uh so to not have some sort of choice makes no sense whatsoever because i i'm very uh drawn towards your your point of view on this i uh if we have a voucher system for example bob it will provide for some a a better education there's no doubt but it'll also leave somewhat abandoned um, the majority of the students who will stay in a failing educational system. Yeah, uh-huh. So my basic contention is uh, that if we're going to have public schools at all, that we must dedicate ourselves to making sure these schools, the public schools, as they are now, perform. Now, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but I guess your point would be that the competition will do that. And if it did, then I would support your position entirely, Bob. So, Mandy, uh, before we leave this topic, I'd like you to just uh, tell us where we stand with regard to the quality of education. Now, you've in your columns, you've mentioned a couple of things that are somewhat startling. Maybe you could tell us about it. Well, it, there are, these are consistent over the years, Bob, that uh, at the early years of education in the, in, the, uh, in the elementary schools, the American students perform as well as the students at the international level. The higher up they go in the system, in the educational process of America, the, the less competitive they are with the, uh, with the foreign students. And when they finally come out, it is the most significant variation between the American outcome and the, 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 uh, the students coming in from, from foreign environments. Sort of in keeping with that, I would mention, you know, I've taught uh, 25 years uh, at college and uh, undergraduate and graduate courses, I, and it's amazing, but the best students I had, the best students I had coming in were from the Caribbean. 
these students came from impoverished areas with, with old, uh, uh, torn textbooks. Yet, because of the demands put on them, no excuses. Uh, they had to perform. They had to take a test uh, to even get out of the secondary schools. Uh, essentially, my best prepared students, not necessarily the brightest, but some were, uh, but they were the best prepared. The overall best performance that I ever saw within any of the programs I taught at the graduate level now were my students coming in from mainland China. As I indicated, Bob, if I gave them an assignment for a 10-page report, invariably they would give me 20 pages. So the, the, the point I'm making is that the schools in America are not producing uh, quality uh, output. Uh, the, the reading comprehension level at this point is the lowest it's ever been. I cite going back to the Carnegie report back in 1983, and amazingly, that, that report just rips to shreds the quality of American education. 1983, yet, by every measurement, the 1983 educational outcomes were superior to the 2021 educational outcomes. So they not only didn't take heed of that Carnegie report demanding that the American education system improve, actually we have gone further down uh, in terms of outcome since that point in time. And how about our spending on education since then? It's gone up dramatically. So money doesn't necessarily do it. It certainly takes a leadership and it takes commitment to uh, quality and uh, metrics and, and, and staying true to the metrics as opposed to, for example, here in Collier County, uh, we have uh, A and B plus and B schools. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the kids can't even read a grade level in, uh, in the fifth grade. Well, I mean, that, that's true. And even in the, uh, the college environment, my students coming in became less and less uh, 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 knowledgeable about almost things that you would presume are just obvious. The participants in World War II, for example, that yeah. was a, a mind-boggling to them. Uh, and if you showed them, for example, and I did this on many occasions, I'd show them the, uh, the New York Times headline, and they can read it. Then I asked them what it meant. In other words, they have the ability to, uh, to say the words, and yet when you put those words into a sentence, the total syntax was, was lost on them. They had no understanding in many cases, not all, but many cases, they had no understanding of what those words meant in a sequence, Bob. Thank you for that, Andy. Look, before we take a break, I do want to bring up the Dushenko trial. Of course, he was found not guilty, uh, and although the FBI had disparaging comments, uh, I think they uh, had egg on their face at the end of the trial, but I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, basically, I think the, the jury said that Denchenko and Sussman were, were not guilty of lying to the FBI, and I, I'm going to put this into a facetious manner, but I think the jury said that you can't lie to liars. Uh, and I think the jury said the FBI, and I'm going to make these words up, um, but I think it's fairly close to reality. I think the jury basically felt that the FBI was fully aware mm -hmm. that both of these men were lying to them uh, at the point they were doing it. And the jury just felt, and I think that uh, Durham actually made this case that the corruption of the FBI was so prevalent that it was almost impossible for these men uh, to have, in fact, um, 
uh, created a felony crime by lying to these people. So I, I think what we can come out of the, uh, the trials with is an understanding of the, uh, the corruption of the FBI, the corruption during the, uh, the Clinton administration, the, the obvious problems with the, with the Steele dossier. All of these things were emphasized by Durham. Now, it's very hard to uh, develop uh, a, a moment of, of truth in these areas, truth being that there's some penalty that's invoked against the FBI. That's a very difficult thing to do in America today, obviously. Uh, but what was exposed, I think, and deepened in our awareness was the total corruption of the FBI in a political setting, Bob. Yeah, I think that's well said, Andy. Kenny, I want to take another break, and then I'd like to talk to you about the midterms. Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence is one of only 97 restaurants worldwide to receive Wine Spectator's prestigious Grand Award, and they've received it for the eighth consecutive year. Blue Provence Restaurant is temporarily closed for renovations due to damage from Hurricane Ian, and they look forward to serving you again in the near future. In the meantime, you can enjoy their grand award-winning wine list with unbeatable prices on more than 2,500 wines by visiting Blue Provence Fine Wines at 1234 8th Street South, Monday through Saturday between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Check out the vast wine selection by visiting Blue Provence on Facebook or visit the easy-to-browse website, BlueProvenceFineWines.com. Visit BlueProvenceFineWines.com, or if you need help, you can call Jacques directly at 239-821-6772. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And you can find out more by visiting the website, vfga.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Bob. So, Andy, we've got the midterms coming up, and I wanted to get your thoughts as we're getting just less than three weeks now from uh, the midterm elections. Less, less than three weeks to determine the fate of America. That's, uh, it's, it's closed in on us very quickly. Uh, let's keep in mind that everything I'm going to say from this point forward will presume a legal vote. I'm not going to constantly uh, uh, reiterate the fact that legality is, is a critical factor. That's just a, a given, and I'm still not 
comfortable with that. But if we look at the, the situation as it exists, the, uh, the recent uh, debates, I think, have gone very well. I thought that Herschel Walker, who was uh, not expected to hold up well against Warnock, I certainly think he, uh, he at least held his own in Georgia. Uh, I think we're, we're looking at the, uh, some of the, uh, the governor races. Um, uh, Tudor Dixon, who was not supposed to have a chance, it looks, looks stronger, maybe have a win, a gubernatorial win in uh, Michigan. Uh, in Wisconsin, uh, Tim Michaels uh, looks like he is going to defeat the Democrat governor, T Tony Evers. So uh, there is a lot of success coming out of the uh, debate process, uh, particularly of, of importance is, is Herschel Walker looking strong against, uh, against Warnock. And certainly at this point, that is a, a toss-up election in, in spite of how much they try to damage uh, Herschel Walker. Uh, if we look at the Democrats, um, Nothing in terms of their agenda looks looks like it should be a winning ticket. Everything is on the, the downside of Americans' point of view. Uh, their support of critical race theory, uh, uh, transgender women and women's sports, their alignment with the corrupt FBI, and certainly it's seen that way, uh, drag queens in the schools, the inflationary economy, which uh, apparently has cost retirees, uh, family, $34,000 on average in terms of lost lost wealth uh, during the Biden administration, uh, the illegal immigration problem, crime. Uh, so there's no reason in the world uh, that effectively anyone should vote for any Democrat uh, that is involved with, the, with these issues. And yet there is a strong chance, and I mentioned this uh, off air, is that there are perhaps going to be too many one-issue voters uh, in America. The one issue that I think may, uh, may damage uh, many of these uh, uh, contests, including uh, Oz, maybe Walker in, 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 uh, uh, in Georgia, Masters out in Arizona, uh, will be the abortion issue. Uh, I, I can't tell you, Bob, how much I would hate to see America... Uh, damaged, significantly damaged by, by losing the ability to control the Senate, particularly because of one issue voters, that being uh, abortion. It's, a, it's a, a, a dangerous situation that we face. Every single issue that we can measure uh, is certainly uh, uh, negative as it pertains to the Democrats. Yet this one single issue uh, voter concept may, in fact, swing enough senatorial elections uh, to bring the Senate home for the Democrats again. I certainly hope that's not true, Bob. Well, I do too. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, my view is that uh, when you sit down at the kitchen table and uh, you're saying, you know what, well, we can't afford gasoline and uh, food too, what should we do? And, by the way, I'm concerned about abortion. <laughs> you know, I just don't see that arising to a point of inter interest in this midterm elections. With, with people, the state of the situation, what's happening, the people losing income, losing the ability to buy gas, the ability to buy energy, to heat the home or cool the home, the ability to uh, buy groceries. I just don't see abortion arising to a point where people are going to say, you know what, Import, in, inflation is important enough to me that I'm going to ignore these other issues. Look, there's no doubt what you're saying is true, and I'm certainly not suggesting a wide-sweeping impact of that uh, abortion issue. But in the close uh, elections, uh, that could be enough to, for example, uh, swing Pennsylvania for Fetterman against Oz. It could, uh. it could swing the gubernatorial race in Georgia for Abrams against Kemp. It could have Warnock defeat uh, Walker. It could have Mark Kelly defeat Blake Masters. It could have uh, Hochul defeat Lee Zelton. Uh, so there are these very close elections, very important elections that may be swung, 
entirely by the the limited strength of these uh, of the abortion uh, single voter single issue voters, Bob. Yeah, back to you know back to the debates. Kemp did a nice job against uh, Stacey Abrams. And and uh, Carrie Lake, uh, she she can't even get the Hobbs to come on the stage and debate her. So it's that's that's going to the basement again. That's become the Democrat strategy: is just don't say anything and just go to the basement and hope hope for the best. Well, um, you know, again, I think you and I are both uh, on on the same page in terms of this. We're optimistic about the midterms. Um, I think this. There should be no doubt that we'll, uh, when I say we now, I'm I'm, I'm including you and I together, uh, that the Republicans will take the House. Uh, There's, um, I think, a very good chance, a solid chance, a likely chance uh, that the Republicans will, will will take the Senate. Of course, if, if, those things happen, and I'm certainly hopeful that they do happen, uh, then the question becomes one is, is how do we actually govern when we're back in control of both houses of, of Congress? If we look at some of the circumstances worldwide, let me just pick on Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson came into the prime minister slot in, uh, in the U.K. Uh, on the strength of his conservative positioning, uh, yet when he governed, he governed as a, an all-out liberal in terms of, of COVID, in terms of immigration, in terms of, uh, of, of the environment. Almost everything he did was not, was not conservative. Right. Uh, right now you have the, the current prime minister who is not being given support by, uh, by the conservative party in the U.K. Now, I'm not saying that there's a direct uh, comparison that can be made, but I am saying that it becomes critical beyond just winning the elections that we actually govern uh, as conservatives. Uh, and if we do that, I think America can be saved. If we just win elections and then uh, uh, fall into line with some of the, uh, the, 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 the current nonsense, Bob, then it, it, will mean, it will mean nothing at all. Well, I have to say the uh, wild card here, of course, is making America great again and the candidates. Hopefully, if these people get into power, it'll be very disappointing if we end up with another situation where we win and we don't do anything. It's a do-nothing Congress. So uh, the, the wild card here, I believe, is the, the fact that people want to make America great again and we'll get a legislative agenda that, that supports that. I think the thing that gives support to your statement there is the continuing strength of Donald Trump in, in American politics. I mean, by all measurements, he is still uh, the most popular politician in America. Right. Uh, and I think after all that is buffeted this man, I think for him to retain that strength is an indication that what you just said is true, that many Americans, let's say most Americans, are more concerned with making America great again than they are with the picayune issues that are presented to them by the left. I think that's absolutely true. Andy, just always appreciate your comment here here in the show. You just did a great job. I just want to remind our listeners the name of your book is uh, Josephus of Oz. It is a terrific read-off topic for today's discussion, but nevertheless, I encourage you to get a copy of Josephus of Oz. Andy, really appreciate your commentary here. Thank you so much for joining us. Talk to you next week, Bob. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did and learned a lot. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. We're going to visit with Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the uh, Cato Institute. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government, and uh, the former mayor of Naples, Bill Barnett, will give us uh, his view on what's happening locally and around the United States as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy this show, I hope you'll tell your friends. That's one of the way we, ways we get the word out and also support our advertisers. 
when without them we couldn't do the show. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs> <laughs>